What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Tribe of Millionaires podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Gruber, where it's my job to dissect peak performance habits and some of the most incredible performers in the world. Today's episode is a member profile with a, a member who's been around, I think, since 2014 with GoBundance, the youngest at the time ever member of GoBundance. He's an investor. He's an entrepreneur. He's done a whole bunch of cool stuff we're going to talk about. Sam Wager, good to see you, brother. Dude, this is an honor to be on. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm excited, bro. You're making me want to level up my setup. Like you, you've got this amazing, like you got that backlight. <laughs> I love the dude. lens. I'll have to figure out what lens you're using. It's it's looking good, man. You're looking tight. Dude, I appreciate that. I'm I'm going to let you in a little secret. Like I see myself on the setup. Like I'm looking at myself and I'm like, I love this setup. Like, it's just like, I always like, I'm like checking myself out in my own setup. <laughs> it's good. It's good. You did a good job with it. So I got it's a little, cool, little now that we're staying another year here in the DR, like I didn't do anything here. I was like, ah, it's just a year. Right. But now that we're staying, I got to like reconfigure this room and do it right with backlight and all that stuff. Yeah. So. I wish I could take credit for it. It's actually a good friend. A good friend came in and just like redid the whole thing for me. And he spent like three hours, like adjusting the lighting two centimeters at a time. But any, anyway, it, it's yeah. fun. Thanks. You were one of seven kids that were homeschooled, if I'm not mistaken. So I wanted to start there. First off, let's do this. What number of the seven were you? Dude, so I'm fifth from the top and it's actually eight. So me plus seven. Oh, so you plus include seven. me, it's eight. Same mom, same dad, big family. Like that's just what my parents wanted to do. And you're the fifth kid in line. So there's four older siblings than you. Yep. Exactly. How does that position in line? being the fifth of eight kids or in the middle of a block of eight kids. How has that, if at all, shown up as who you are today? How does that reflect who you are today? Dude, being the middle of an eight awesome person question. Yeah, yeah. I can give a great answer to this because um, the truth is I've thought about this a lot. I've th um, so I'm, so I'm fifth from the top, which means I'm as middle as middle gets of eight, right? It's like me and my sister are the two middle yeah. out of eight. And so being a middle kid, um, there's just certain things that like, well, okay. So number one, you don't get a lot of attention because we were all homeschooled. So we're home a lot. So like, m like the older siblings in my family were the one that raised me, taught me to read. Like my mom was busy with three young kids at the time. So in the middle, you're not like the first ones and you're not the last one. So it's just like, you're kind of like, you're just in the middle. So in order to get attention, and we all know as kids, like we thrive on that attention and love, right? In order to get attention, you either do something really, really, really good or really, really, really bad. And that's how you get attention. So um, we'll call it an attention deficit, but that inspired me. I mean, it really helped me become who I am now because I was like, I want to be somebody, right? And being somebody initially was what drove me to go out and try to stand out. Um, I think that's also just honestly, now that, now that I'm talking it through, is probably just a also a result of just being from a big family. Like you're, you know, my dad's working full time to try to support a family. My mom's at home, homeschooling us all. And like, there's just a lot of attention that's spread out, right? You're not getting that full intensity of a mom or a dad. I'm grateful that my parents were together. I would say the second thing that it really supported me in is, um, you, you kind of become, they call it middle child syndrome when you like, you just want everybody to get along and be happy. When you're in the middle, everybody seems to come to you with their problems. My mom would complain about my dad sometimes. And I just wanted everybody to get along and be happy. And like, I was able to kind of bridge the gap between the older and the younger and my mom and my dad. And so trying to be that loving sibling in the middle was, was how it really impacted me. And I think it kind of really built my heart for people and uh, just wanting everybody to get along, man. Makes sense. Do you yeah. getting attention, being the middle child, trying to stand out, had that ever gotten you in any kind of severe trouble? No, but it got some of my siblings in trouble. Um, 
has it ever gotten me in trouble? No, I think I always did it really positively. <laughs> that sounds like a, you know, it sounds like I'm really building myself up here. But no, I think the truth is like how I interpreted that. I got into business when I was really young. I, I bought a martial arts school when I was 15 years old. And I just had good mentors around me to, to say like, hey, I guess whatever reason, like I, I never forget, I was sitting around a campfire one time with my group of friends and I wanted to stand out even with my friends. Right? I just had that huge need to stand out. And they were all tell they were all saying one thing that they wanted to do in life, like one big life goal. It was like this little conversation that was happening around a campfire one night. And I was probably 13 at the time, 12 or 13 at the time. And as everybody's sharing, I'm thinking like it's getting around to my turn. And I'm like, what could I say that would impress them? What could I say that would impress them? And I thought the only thing that they don't have is money. Like they have everything. My friends were, you know, they had their families, they were building this or what or whatever. And my, all my friends at the time were like older than me. And I was just trying to like fit into that older group. And um when I got to my turn, I said, I'll be a millionaire someday. Like, that's my thing. And, and they just scoffed at it. I thought it would impress them. And instead it like made them angry. And it made me angry that they were like, that's not important. You can't do that. And we, you know, I'm raised in a small town where the average income was like 22,000 at the time, right? It was something insanely low. And so just um, for me, I always took the standing out as like in a really positive way. And I guess I'm grateful for that, but that set me on the path of like making money, trying to be more successful than everybody else. So, you know, I guess it made me get scrappy in business. Makes you sense. Know, maybe a little yeah. too scrappy in business sometime to try to make some money. And I have to temper that part of me. There was a whole time in my life where I was like, what if I just didn't pay my taxes and I did this and this? Because the IRS, it's really a voluntary system, you know? And I, I like learned that whole game and I read this book called The Federal Mafia and like how the IRS, you know, and I was like, Sam, you're going to go to jail. <laughs> like, don't do this. You might save a little bit on taxes, but it's not going to really end up being a savings. It's going to end up sending you to jail. So I didn't, I didn't proceed with that, but uh, um, yeah, I guess that that's, that's my answer to that question. Yeah. Eight schools home, eight kids homeschooled. Yeah. How, how are the relationships along in that time and today when you're all in such close proximity together for so long? I'm really grateful for my upbringing. I'm, I'm close with all my siblings is the truth. And I think that's part of being the middle kid, man, is you, like, you can relate to the older ones because you're closer to their age than the younger ones. And you can relate to the younger ones because you're closer to their age than the older ones, right? So you are truly like this gap between them. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I'm close, I would say with all of my siblings to a certain extent, I was definitely closer with the ones younger than me. They all ended up working for me in my martial arts business. Wow. So I've got, so it's me, it's Tim, Abby, William, and they all worked for me for a large time. I just, just completed the sale of my of my chain of martial arts schools. So they are on their own now. Some of them own their own schools and are, are doing their own things. But I always worked with my younger siblings. And um, I think my older siblings just looked up to me for how ambitious I was. Um, so yeah, I'm really close to them even now. It's been, a, it's been a really, really, really beautiful relationship. That's one of the great things about homeschooling. You're in proximity a ton and you get to know them really, really well. It worked the, out for me. The 50, at 15, you're buying a martial arts school. How do you find that? Walk me through what happened there. How did you uh, How did you find the martial arts school? How did you fund the martial arts school? What were your parents rolling? It kind of gave me the, the broad swats on it. Yeah, the high level view, man, is I'm like ADD, ADHD. My mom's like, you need martial arts. She puts me in this little martial arts school in our little town of 2,000 people in Amherst, Virginia, which is literally like one stoplight, 2,000 people. And the instructor was just burnt out, like super burnt out. He thought he was going to build this huge studio and everybody would just show up. And that's not what happened. Like you got to market, you got to, you got to really work the business game. And so he wanted, he always had this dream. My instructor always had this dream to fish professionally on the Bass Pro circuit. Like that was his dream. And one day he just took my parents out to lunch 
to uh, Texas Roadhouse in Lynchburg, Virginia, and said, "I want to sell your, I want to sell your your son Sam," because I was like in their instructor training program at the time. I was still young; I was fourteen, probably at that at that age at that time. And he said, "I want. I think Sam could do it. I see him teach. He's good. He's he he can do this. And before I leave, I will hire him a, a consultant that will help him with the business. Like that'll be my gift to him. But like, I want out of the school." And my parents were like, "How much?" And he's like, fifteen thousand dollars." <laughs> and they were like, "All right, let's do it." My parents were not wealthy, but they came up with fifteen grand. Gave their I turned fifteen, and I just was out to like prove to the world that I could be somebody. I spiked my hair. I looked a little older than I was. Like. Life was good. And my, my parents were supposed to show up with me every day at the school because I wasn't 18 yet, right? And they were like, yeah, 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 we'll do that. We'll do that. Like, they did it like three times. And then it's like, Sam, we got, we got, we're busy. Like, do it. Take care of it. And I did. And that was the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey, man. And I just had good people around me to support me along that journey. $15,000 they pay for this for the school. You take it yeah. over. How did you balance that with school? Was the was Did you have a staff? Like, What did that look like? Or were you just kind of checked out with school? I was a one-man show at that time running a school of about 95 to 100 students, let's just say, in that school, which one person can run that that small of a martial arts school pretty easily. You know, so I would run all the credit cards manually every month for their, you know, it was a very, a lot of stuff was a manual process. Um, dude, it was, it was good. Like I, I didn't have any staff uh, at the time. We had a lease, we had a commercial lease that my dad had to sign and um it was uh, what was the question again? The specific question? Just Sorry, yeah, balancing with like the homeschooling. I guess did it just become essentially your curriculum? That ownership of that business? That that basically became my high school was owning that business. Yeah. Wow. Like I had I was I was homeschooled. And one of the great things about homeschools, man, is you get to like you get to just be a little bit more dialed in it's like montessori it's like the montessori approach of like hey where's this kid like leaning towards oh he's leaning towards business or like i had a brother who leaned towards computers like introvert but leaned towards computers and like he was working for microsoft at like 17 years old um and like and so 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 like that that that's kind of my parents approach to education it's like well what is sam leaning towards okay does he have enough math does he have enough english does he have enough of the basics now can he spend high school like just running a business and like well that my parents thought ahead man they were like super yeah. ahead of the time you know when this kind of stuff was coming out now homeschooling is like way more popular even the Montessori stuff is way more popular but like back then it wasn't like back then like my parents moved to this county it was called Amherst County in Virginia and like the the public school system took them to court because once they moved they were like you have to show up at school because we had eight kids they were like you have to like these kids have to be in public school and my parents were like no they don't like we wow. can like homeschool and they were like no you don't so we had to like hire a lawyer and like under the religious exemption law we, we were allowed to get out but it was like this it was like this whole process back then right so my parents were kind of on the cutting edge of that man it was really cool to see and i'm so grateful for their kind of like foresight and seeing that uh, the truth is they just didn't want the government influencing for kids. <laughs> They're like, we want to teach them what we want to teach them. But I'm grateful for it because I got to buy martial arts school. And that was my high school. And I'd done enough math, enough English, enough science to kind of for them, to, my parents to be like, okay, like this is your, this is your niche. Go all in. We're in the era of uh, potential government overreach, right? Between, between COVID, a lot of people have feelings about that. I know I do. Yeah. Uh, and all of that. I, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think I've heard of anybody, well, I know I haven't heard, but I don't think it's prevalent that a school system goes after families whose kids aren't enrolled in school nowadays. Like you said, yeah. homeschooling is way more prevalent. There's there's alternatives or whatever. What's the incentive? Is it just, hey, you know, was there like a, a, a child uh, safety concern 
in going after your parents for all of you to be going to the local public school? Yeah, I think it was. I to be totally fair, I'd have to ask my parents specifically what the situation was. I just That's know so that they strange. told us like we had to fight for this homeschooling. Like we had to hire a lawyer from and it wasn't even um they got the lawyer from one of these big homeschool. I mean, thankfully there was like a co-op, a homeschool co-op. I'm blanking on the name right now, but Homeschools Association of America or whatever, like, but they came in to kind of support my parents. Uh, I think it was. It was like eight kids. You want to live in like this small, I mean, and keep in mind, it's like this county is not, I mean, it's, it's a right. big county, but like it's probably like 10,000 people that live in the whole county, 2,000 people that live in a little town. So you, you move to the area and you've got eight kids, like everybody knows you. So I think it was just like, uh, like, wait, no, this is not, you know, this is not acceptable kind of thing. Um, and then they just, but they, they fought it successfully and, um, yeah. and the rest is history. The rest is history. Did you end up going yeah. to college? So my dad worked at a college called uh, Liberty University. It's one of the biggest like Christian evangelical schools in the world right now, actually. And uh, he worked, that's where he worked. And part of his, part of what he got, you know, he got paid a salary, of course, but then he got free education for all of his kids. And he always said that like, that was worth way more than what he got paid in salary. Because right? he got this full ride scholarship for anybody that works there full time, which is a really cool benefit. So I went, I did a couple of years kind of distance learning, always online took basic accounting, took a math class, took a Bible class, took like the class, just like core education stuff. And then I was making enough money. And when I say enough money, it wasn't a ton, but for me, it was in this small town. I mean, I was probably making 45 to 65 a year, you know, somewhere in there running this little school. And my dad was just like, that's kind of what I make. <laughs> and my dad had a doctorate, two masters and a bachelor's degree. I mean, that's the, yeah, he's a do granted doctorate of ministry, but he had a master in forestry and a master of something else and a bat. And it was just like, he was just like, you can see it didn't work out for me super well. So like, if you want to not do college and I remember coming to my dad saying, Hey, I don't, I think I'm going to drop out and I'm going to pursue this entrepreneur thing full time. And I was just in, man, it was, um, it was, it, it fit with my skill set. I don't think it fits with everybody's skill set, but for me, the way I was wired, the way I was naturally wired, it just, it worked for me and I was passionate about it. So my parents let me go. I'm when did you expand to us? Yeah. When did you expand to a second school? So on, like, when did the, when did the expansion begin of, uh, of the set of schools that you had uh, ended up selling recently? Yeah. I, one of the, one of the things that, so I told you this, this martial arts instructor left me with a consultant and that consultant was the best thing that ever happened with to me. Everybody, like I see people out there, man, trying to build businesses without any kind of systems. Like they're trying to piecemeal systems together. And I'm like, damn, that would be hard. Cause this guy literally gave me a franchisable system. It wasn't a franchise, but it was like, it was like, here's the script. Here's what you say. When someone walks in your door of your Academy, you, you bring your feet together, your hands by your side, you bow and you say, hello, welcome to Superkids black belt Academy. My name is like that detailed of stuff. Right? Like, and he just made me memorize everything. And I memorized everything as a 15 year old and a 16 year old. And it just, that's what I said. And it kind of worked and I got sales. So, um, but so, so in essence, I built that little business, but then he, eventually he said, man, you're in a small town. Like you should move to what the big city that was Charlottesville, Virginia. It was like an hour away, 65,000 people. It was like real big. And I, and I just, I, it was the right thing to do. So I put my brother in charge of the small school. I had a brother that was training. He was my first black belt under me. He was good at business. I taught him the business. It was just family just brought up my younger sibling and, um, I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. Man, this is one of my most proud accomplishments. I will be honest with you. And no matter how much money I make, I think I think I'll still think of this. I rented this little. I went to a hotel in the area, and I said, "Hey, I'm like looking to start a martial arts school. I'd like to rent a little conference room." And I said, "My budget is 500 bucks a month." And they're like, "Okay, well, the only one that would fit that budget, you know, for two times a week, I said I want it two times a week, would be this little, like, literally 20 feet by 20 feet little conference room." 
And I was like, I'll take it. So I go, this is in Charlottesville, Virginia. So I go in, I like push pin, you know, with a little push pin, my student oath banner to the wall. I set up this table, put all my uniforms out there. And I just go out on the street corner. I go into like grocery store parking lots was my favorite way to market back then. And I would just walk up to people that were putting groceries in the car, you know, in my karate uniform, bow, excuse me, sir, I'm doing a survey. Would you mind answering three quick questions? Da, 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 da. Well, I'm giving away a free guest pass to my school. You know, I try to set an appointment and five appointments a day was my goal. And then people would just come in and I would just sell them and I would pitch them on the vision of like, we're here, but we're going to get to hundred students. I'm going to like rent a real place. And I'm 18 at the time, 19 at this point, at this point, opening my second location. And that school gross, like my gross revenues for month one was like $10,800. And because I, we would prepay people on these, these memberships into the future. And, and I remember calling my friend at the end of that month and being like, I haven't even paid the rent on this space yet. Cause I was paying it. Like I was using it. And then they told me to pay at the end of the month. I was like, who screw those people that say you have to have money to make money. I just made 10. It was like just this mind blowing moment for me. That school went on to become the, it, in the top 1% of all martial arts schools in the nation in terms of revenue it generated, how many students it had in the black, but it's that it, that it produced. And it was just a really cool. And I put my brother in charge of that one. And, you know, the story goes on, but um, that was my second location. And that was uh, just a really, really, really fun, like you can do anything moment. Do you mind sharing? Maybe you don't want to, but what does a third largest uh, or whatever it is, top 1% uh, martial arts school in the country do in revenue? Is that a seven figure business? Yeah, you're doing about a million bucks a year. Wow. If you're doing a million bucks a year in the top, I mean, uh, the average martial, I mean, here's here's the truth the average martial arts school in America does between seven and $15,000 a month. That's what I would have guessed, to be honest with you. That's just what they do. Yeah, I would have guessed that. I would have guessed it's a, you know, it's a ten to thirty thousand dollar a month type business. So to do a million dollars in a martial arts studio, that sounds insane to me. But you did. Yeah. So you're doing. So you're doing. You know, that school probably did close to, yeah, anywhere between sixty on a bad month, sixty to eighty grand in a month, and that's that. That's hustling in a martial arts school. Now keep in mind. There are schools that hit those numbers, but a lot of the ways that martial arts schools will hit those numbers is through a, is through an after school program. So an after school, you'll pay a parent will pay, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars a month for you to babysit their kid from when they get off of school three o'clock to when they get home at seven, and that's easy to hit those numbers. We were always so so our our we didn't do any after school. So for us, it was just pure martial arts people coming in taking classes. And that was our business model. And it was just so much. We didn't have to have the staff or the team. So it's a little it, like for our model doing pure martial arts, that was very, very, very rare in our industry. That makes sense. How many, yeah. how many studios did you, ex- how many studios did you expand to eventually? Seven. Seven, all in Virginia? Nope. We, um, no, we had, uh, that was the biggest one in Virginia. I sold the first one that was in the tiny little town. It just wasn't worth us doing it. I bought, I bought two in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then expanded to four more, but ended up being in like North Carolina, South Carolina. And then we always kept the one in Virginia. What the one that you sold the first one in your small town, you bought for 15,000 of your parents did. What did you sell it yeah. for? I think I sold it for like 30 grand or something like that. <laughs> Doubled your money. Like a, it was like a seller financed deal to my brother-in-law. Who, the, my brother-in-law was the one that ended up buying it. He yeah. was my brother-in-law at the time. Maybe he was my fiance. He was my, my sister's fiance. He wasn't actually even married at the time, but yeah, it was some sweet. It was, it, it was more so I could get out and yeah. like go to the big city. Like that was the play. It wasn't like I'm, it had been a cash flowing asset for me ever since I had it, but. Makes sense. Let's just yeah, bring in this full circle. So you yeah. exit, why exit, who to, whatever you want to share on, on the, on the exit recently that you sold all the studios. Yeah, man. The exit was really just so I could focus more on real estate. That's the truth. 
Um, the exit was, yeah. I mean, the full story is my CEO was my, was that same brother who became, who was my first black belt. And, uh, I don't talk about a lot publicly because it's still pretty raw, but he just started smoking something. He shouldn't start. He shouldn't have been smoking. And for lack of a better term, it fucked with his brain and he got in a lot of trouble and now he's in jail. And I stepped in to take, I stepped in to take his job as CEO and just realized like, A, I've always done with this with my brother. I don't want to do it without him. B, my heart wasn't in it the same way it was 10 years ago when I was doing this. It was where I cut my teeth. It was a great business to be in. It produced a lot of cash flow, but it wasn't my, it was, it was, it just wasn't my, it wasn't, yeah, the passion wasn't there for it. And so I just talked to the operators and said, hey guys, how about I give you great deals on your school? You guys, I'll even sell or finance some of them for you. Like, I think I'm just out. And it was, a, it was a process. I sold two and then I sold two more. And then I was like, and then I kept 51% of two other ones because they were the best ones. And then I just came to them even last month. I was like, guys, I'll just sell or finance the other half of this to you guys. Like, I'm not even, I'm not serving you. I'm, this is like, I'm not helping you guys. I'm not in this. My heart's not in this. Like, let me, let me just, I made a cut list with a bunch of my friends. And one of the things I needed to cut was the mental stress of owning this asset class and be able to focus into what we're doing now, which is building and teaching and managing co-living, co-living buildings, which is kind of something I'm all in on right now. So yeah, it wasn't, um, the cash flow from those businesses made me wealthy. The exits did not make me wealthy. And that was a big learning lesson on that. All in, if I if I total up everything I sold those schools for, it was probably one, two, maybe, or you know, with some financing that I had to do. And it was a big, um, it's kind of a big moment for me because I had just like one of my houses had appreciated a bunch. And I remember thinking like a house that that I did nothing for you know, appreciated, like appreciated like half a million bucks, like over a couple of years. Right. And like, that was the same, same amount of money I received from selling this business that like, that I'd been working on for the last 12 or 13 years, you know? And it's just like, okay, like this is, let's, let's put my effort into something that is, is where my heart is a little bit more and that I feel like I can produce more cash flow with. The goal is for a lot of people to exit a business that they started. You just said a moment ago you made cash flow. The cash flow made you wealthy. The exit did not, and you learned a lesson from that. Can you expand? What What's the lesson that you took from exiting your business versus the cash flow of your business? Yeah, I think it's just a lesson on. That's a great question, dude. I think the lesson is: Am I in a business that's going to sell for really not a great multiple, or am I in a business that needs the challenge with a martial arts school? is that it is just 100% based on your personality. Like I could have a school, for example, that school that I told you that was doing like top 1% revenues in the United States, the main instructor leaves or I move him to a different position, revenues could drop by 50%. I see. It, it, is, it, it, is that, it is that based on personality. You're not selling anything. You're selling a personality. And we try, and, and and some of this was me being a young entrepreneur. I I tried to mitigate that with different class experiences, and and I just whether I didn't have the knowledge to do it, or I just didn't have whatever I didn't, I wasn't able to do it in a in a really 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 powerful way. So it was just we built a lot of personality based businesses. So I guess that's one lesson: don't build a personality based business if you can help it. Um, and then recognizing that what it was worth when it was done was 
was not what I would have wanted it to be worth. If it's something I spent 15 years building, I would have wanted it to be worth a lot more. And the, and the truth is like, I could have sold a school to someone for 300, I could have sold them their school for $300,000 or they could just have started one from scratch. These are leased buildings, right? I didn't own the real estate. So I'm, I'm just selling them like their current, I'm basically selling them their students. But if they're the operator, if they laugh, their students would probably leave and go with them anyway, right? Like it's not a, therefore I can't sell it for a 10X multiple. It's like, there's just not as much leverage there. So I want to build something that's more based on systems. I want to build something that's based not just on me that I actually can exit for a much bigger multiple. Let's get into that here in a second. One one final question to wrap up, up uh, wrap up on this topic. Family and business, the mix of that. I know in my experience, it's never really been great. You know, renting an apartment, for instance, to a family member or whatever it is. Like I've just learned a couple of different times not to mix the two. How did you resolve, handle the business, maybe going full cycle for you, but the, it sounds like the catalyst perhaps being the demise of your own brother. How did that, how did you handle that emotionally as a business person? Just curious. It was by far the toughest thing I've dealt with in my life today because he, A, it was so unexpected for me. B, the way that it messed with his head. And it was just some like synthetic weed stuff he was smoking. I mean, it was technically even like legal to buy, but whatever constitution he had. And I've talked to tons of people about it. It's just like, it just, just flipped a switch that made him um, a narcissistic godlike figure and he could do no wrong. And so he'd get arrested and then like try to fight the police officer and grab their gun and shit like that. And, uh, you know, you don't get away with that. Like that stuff sends you to jail for a long time. So it was weird. Um, how did I deal with it emotionally? It was I, I wouldn't have de dealt with it emotionally if I hadn't been for my wife just being there and me just like needing to regularly cry. Just at the random moments, man. It, like it really felt like someone, anybody that's been through a death. I've never been through a super, super close death, but it was what I imagined it would feel like. Like He's no longer here. He's not in my life. We were, and we were super close. He was my best friend growing up. He was my best business guy growing up. And it was just like very, 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 very hard. Um, so I dealt with it with just a lot of release of emotions. I think there might've been a mushrooms trip in there somewhere. Um, and just a lot of prayer and walks in nature and, and then letting go. Yeah. It's gotta be tough. Middle child. You just expressed earlier, you know, wanting to sort of be the, you know, the balance between everybody, keeping everybody happy and to have a, a close relative like that go off the deep end, if you will, or or maybe take a path that, you know, you prefer that they didn't and have to watch that and sit next to it. My heart goes out to you. I can't imagine what you were going through with that. Yeah, man, that's that's exactly what my counselor said. She said, your, your way of coping growing up was, are you okay, Jamie? Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Okay. Everybody's okay. I'm okay. And imagine, yeah, and then imagine life throws you in a situation where it doesn't matter what you fucking do, you can't make them okay. Yeah. And so it's like, you, I can't be okay. It, that's the intensity of it, man, was like, wait a second. This isn't supposed to happen. I can fix almost anything, but I can't fix this. That's tough. Thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. Words. That's control. 
you know, like I, we yes. all have to give up on that to some extent. Like we all <laughs> think we could control the outcomes, but um, I, that's the, that's the, it's, it's part and parcel of even the guys in abundance, right? Like everybody you talk to, like every one of us have control issues. You talk about mm-hmm. mushrooms, man. Like when, when I did my retreat, the lady who facilitated it for me, she's like, we're going to amp this up a little bit, you know, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're going with grams. not quite but yeah we're gonna go full dose i'm like why she's like because you you're gonna be you're gonna struggle to let go and boy was she right boy was she right you know we can get into that if you want to but she um, sent you up she sent you into another atmosphere like no kidding kidding. talk to me about real estate where did you start where are you today yeah real estate my journey into real estate was just buying a little three bedroom three bath little condo in in that town charlottesville virginia where i built my my second martial arts school and um so, so not the small, small town, but the big city of 65,000 people was, yeah, was right. where it was. And um, I just I just lived in a room and rented out the other two rooms. And that was house hacking. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever because I was like making money to live in my house. And I was like, most people, this is their busy, biggest expense. And I'm like making money. This is like this little, you know, and I'm young, I'm single. I'm like in my 20s or, you know, late teens, early 20s. And I didn't think anything of it until I moved to Charlotte, bought a house. and bought a house just because it felt like the right thing to do. And I had the income from my schools to support it. So I bought this little house. I didn't want to throw away money in rent. And just I'm used to commotion in the house, so I move into this house. And I'm like, it's just too quiet. It was only like 1,600 square feet, but it was like I had three bedrooms, and so I started renting out rooms and uh, worked out well. Like got along well. And one of my first roommates was from uh, was from Mexico, and him and I would just talk about girls all the time, and we'd like do the house improvement projects. He had a pickup truck, so anything I needed it was like, bro, like let's go like pick up rocks and put rocks, just stupid stuff like that, and. And um, he was a bud, and I, so I had so I had so I had fun with it, and I had so much fun with it that I like took half of my living room, turned it into a fourth bedroom, and then one day my banker friend, who was a really you know six figure or multi multi six figure earner at SunTrust at the time before they moved merged with Truist, and uh, he was like, hey man, how much are you renting that house for? He's like, I know you're kind of doing the room rental thing, and I was like, I don't know, like if you count me as a renter, it'd be like two thousand eight hundred and seventy five dollars, and he's like, you know that house would only rent for like fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred on the open market, and I was like, oh, I'm like almost doubling the rent. So being the all-in person that I am, I'm like, I wonder if I could do this with five bedrooms. And then I so like buy another house in five, you know, primary residence loan, 3% down. I just move after every year. So every year I'm just moving, buying a new house. And I'm like, what about six bedrooms? What about seven? Could I do it with eight? Could I get nine people to share a house? And everybody thinks this is crazy. But like, keep in mind, I was like, I'm homeschooled, eight kids, two parents. That means 10 people are in this house regularly. I'm just like, this is normal, guys. Like, this is actually cool. Little did I know that it would take off in the in the wave. Little did I know, you know, now January of this of last year or January of 2021, you know, U.S. Department for Housing and Urban Development comes out and says we believe co living can solve affordable housing in America. Wow! Like that's what I was doing 12 years ago, 13 years ago, just because it was like I, I thought it was awesome. You know, little did I know tech companies like Pad Split and Bungalow would be coming out, have seven, eight, ten thousand rooms and be given, you know, Bungalow just got, Bungalow owns no real estate. They're just a tech platform to list your room on. And they just got a $400 million evaluation. You know, Mark Cuban is one of the pad splits, biggest investors now. And it's just like, now it's a wave. Now it's Airbnb when it was 2011, right? When before Airbnb was like, and so I'm excited about it, man. And so, so, so I just started doing that. And I was like taking homes that would normally rent for two grand. And we were, you know, they were grossing six grand or 6,500 or, and just crazy stuff. And so we started, I started seeing the cash flow. And of course there's tons of little issues. I'm not going to make it sound like it's all roses because it wasn't like get a call from Johnny and Johnny's like, you know, Johnny's one of your housemates. Hey, you know, Susie ate my peanut butter and like, I'm mad at her. Like, Johnny, what do you want me to do about it? You need to tell her never to eat my, like, okay. Like, 
I'm not going to do co-living if this is what I have to deal with every day, all day. And so you get, there are, there are some of those things, but we created a lot of systems to fix those things. We labeled all the cabinet space and it was just an asset class. I decided to go all in on. And, and honestly, Robert Kiyosaki was the one who, who helped me go on. So 2014, I joined GoBundance. They, that was the year, I think it was either 2013 or 14. They brought in Robert Kiyosaki to one of the events. There's only like 50, 60 people at this event. And Robert Kiyosaki's there. And I'm like beelining it to his table right after I'm done. I'm like, Robert, I'm doing this thing. I'm like renting out rooms. Should I go all in? I see nobody else doing this, but the cash flow's awesome. He's like, Sam, I know people who are doing this. He's like, this is the wave of the, he's like, I literally believe this is the wave of the future. And I'm like writing it down. Cause I just needed that confidence, right? I just needed someone to say like, go all in. So Robert Kiyosaki is the one who told me to go all in. And then he leaned in that same conversation. He leans in. He's like, I live in a 4,800 square foot house. When shit hits the fan, I know exactly where I'm going to put the walls to make my house six units. <laughs> I was like, if it's good enough for him, it's good. like I can go all in on it, you know? Wow. Now that makes sense. Uh, are you in the space of sober living as well? No, that's a little bit of a different model, right? Wow. You're, yeah. you're getting different approvals for it. You need to have the connections for that. You're putting two or three people in a room. I'm doing single room occupancy. Um for young professionals, for working professionals is basically my niche, but, uh, but that is a very profitable model as well. It just has different nuances to it that you sure. need to understand. What, um, what would you say, how many units do you have right now? I don't know how you want to count that, like properties plus maybe doors, like however you want, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, doors, as far as, you know, rooms that you're renting, like how much, how much is in your portfolio right now? Yeah. 188 doors in our portfolio right now. So that's just, that's like one bedroom is a door. And that's probably in 30 some houses, 36, 37 houses. Is it is is market essential or does it work in almost any market? It works in any market that needs housing. Like any market where let's call it workforce housing is a need. So basically any market. <laughs> yeah. What what's I mean, if you think about it, like what market right now in the United States does not need like affordable workforce housing? It's true. Is your tenant Maybe based if you're in the middle of BFE. You know, right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the Ozarks. What uh yeah. what is the mix of your tenants? Are you are you lower income, fixed income, that sort of thing? Or is it more young professionals who just need a place to rest their head because they're going and grinding? Or is it everything? What's the mix look like? Yeah, the main tenant, the main tendency that we're seeing, we're kind of seeing two groups right now. Young professionals is kind of who we market to, talk about, put in our ads. And so young professionals out of college, a couple years out of college, you know, maybe they make 40 to 80 grand a year, 40 to 70 grand a year approximately, you know, so they're, so, so them going and spending $1,600 on a studio plus utilities, like that's a, you know, that's, that's a, that's a chunk of their cash, whatever there is they're earning. Um, that's a big piece of our population. And then we started seeing more fixed income, like 55 plus, you know, maybe 60, 65, that just like, they don't mind making the compromise to live with people. Heck, they prefer it actually. And they're on a fixed income. And so for them to pay 850 a room, all utilities included is like, Hey, like that, that's awesome. I can spend, I can free up cash for whatever else they want to do in their life. Right. Um, and so that, that's kind of the two groups that we're seeing a lot attracted to this model. And, uh, so yeah, workforce housing kind yeah. of out of college and then like this older fixed income population. Are they ever blended in the same home? 55 year old dude, 18 year old. Oh, yeah lady oh yeah oh yeah all okay. the time all wow. the time that's very yeah multi-generational living man like anybody can i can't discriminate i technically i'm not allowed to discriminate on who i who i rent true. to right true, i have to true. someone and it's all co-ed everybody's like well you keep houses like i can't i can't discriminate based on the, the the gender of the person coming in either 
granted, I can have a conversation and say, look, I can have a conversation offline and say, look, are you looking for an all-female house or whatever? But we don't have any all-female houses. Everything is right. co-ed, 100%. And we, we, we find ways to make it safe. I mean, there's individual locks. There's ring cameras on the front. And we buy in nice neighborhoods. Like, this is not this is not a boarding house. And that's what people have to understand. This is not... This, this is a very well-run professional house that looks just as nice, if not nicer than every other house on that street. Very well taken care of because it's producing so much cash flow. Like we send in professional cleaners a couple of times a month to really make the common areas look amazing. Like they're getting serviced really well. What are two or three systems that are essential for this to run and scale? Yeah, it's clean. It's It needs to be clean. It needs to be quiet and it needs to be safe. Those are the three systems. So the way How do you, you make it clean. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, you send in professional cleaners once or twice a month. You have a checklist. We literally like in the lease, we tell them uh, you have to initial this thing where you're you're agreeing to do this little checklist like once a month. And if they are like, that sounds like chores, then they're like, no problem. It's 50 bucks extra a month. We take care of it for you. So people will opt out of that, right? The little, but that's one way we do it. Um, and then just no personal items in the common space whatsoever. Like we'll send our, anytime our property managers and they're doing a showing or the cleaners are in there, if they see a personal item, stick it in a box. If it's there the next time, like we throw it away kind of thing. Like, Hey, very, like when we walk in personal items, like you can make your room messy if that's how you want to keep your room with your lock on it. But otherwise this, this thing needs to look popping when it's, when it's, when someone walks into it. So that's, that's how you make it clean. And there's other little systems, but those are some of the main ones. Quiet is just like headphones hours. So 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock on weekends. If you, if you ever TV blaring, like boom, goes to Bluetooth. Wire that, wire that shit up and make sure it's not blaring after 11 kind of thing. So that's, uh, that's one thing. No TVs in the common space, believe it or not. We used to like make our, Oh, no kidding. Like, yeah. Cause like everybody wants to watch something different. And it's just like, there's like a noise box in your, in your house. Like you don't want that. Um, and then obviously, of course, of course, like how you vet your tenants is so important, making sure they understand what they're getting into and they understand like, hey, we're trying to build a really positive community of great people living together and doing work together. So like you need to be okay with that. So that's, uh, that, that's uh, what did I say? So it's quiet. quiet. It's clean. Yeah, we're on quiet. So um, clean, quiet. Limit, and... Yeah, limit, limit the number of overnight guests for quiet is another mm. thing you have to do. You have to limit that in the least. They have to initial that they can understand that. Not that we enforce that super heavily, but like if someone complains, you can be like, hey man, it's it's limited to five per month. Like don't don't make us check the ring camera. Like just limit it to five per month. You can't have someone stand over with you every night. That way there's not just this, it keeps it quieter. Yeah. Um. And then and then so safe is, safe is the third thing you have to have for this to scale. And safe is like, yeah, ring cameras on the front, keyless entry on the front, keyless entry on every bedroom door, um, you know, house rules that they initial off, like no weapons <laughs> allowed on the premises yeah. and just do a good vetting process. Like do the background check, make sure they don't have any evictions or violent criminal history whatsoever. Like do, do your job vetting like you would for anything that you'd let people in, but it's a little bit more important because there's shared common space, right? So do a good vetting process. And, um, if you do that, then it, then it makes it for the most part safe. So you got quiet, clean, and safe. If you can do those in a co-living space, you can scale big. We add in the fourth element, that's community. So we'll run events you know, every quarter or twice a year to bring people together, kind of help people know each other. We'll send pizza to the house once a month. Um, you're spitting off this kind of cash flow. You can do cool stuff like that. We give them a personal development manual. We say, if you work through this manual, it teaches you goal setting and finances and meditation. Like We'll give you a $200 gift card. Like, just stuff like that that lets people know we care about them and we want them to be in this house to improve their life and uh, and not just be somebody that's in the house. 
I think the, the standard for most apartments still is in that one to $200 a door a month after you take out CapEx and, you know, some reserves and this, that, and the other. You're, you're, it sounds like getting maybe double the rent, but you're including utilities. I'm sure you're including furnishing, yeah. uh, um, TV, all of that good stuff. So from a standpoint of per door, what is the sort of profit margin that you make per door? Is it about the same or, or is it more or less? Yeah. How we teach our clients is like making sure they get the, so, so first of all, I want to clarify the furnishings is only in the common areas. We do not furnish, you know, your room is the new apartment. Like that's the sacrifice people are having to make because of inflation and affordable housing. And by the way, that's like how people in Europe think about it a lot more than we do. Right. And so that's just kind of how we're thinking about it. Um, so you can furnish your room however you want. Somebody can change out the bulbs in their fan to be blue neon. And like, I don't care. Cause that's like, that's your apartment. Do whatever you want in there, but I will furnish the common areas, no personal items in the common space. So there's that element of it. So the way that I coach clients is like basically to make sure they're getting the returns that they want is this, I'm looking specifically at what the cash on cash return is of a deal and a cash on the cash on cash return on most co-living deals with like a debt service type loan with 20% down is going to be 15 to 20%. And that's not including appreciation, depreciation, principal pay down, or just the leverage that they have on the property. Right. And that's kind of what we're targeting. As far as what I see an actual house, you know, so much of what a house produces is going to be based on what loan you can get. And you know, your personal situation when it comes to that type of stuff, but we'll see a house, one house, like a single family house produce two to $3,000 a month in net cash flow after capex, after utilities, after oh. a management fee and things like that. So what does that break down per door? I mean, if you take two grand divided by, let's say that home has seven, you know, seven, bucks a door. seven rooms in it, you're at 300, you're basically at 300 a, a door. Incredible. So, 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 but, but, but to take a house, I mean, I think here's the brilliance of it. To take a house that would normally, if I rented this single family house on the open market to a single family, it's going to lose a little bit of money or it's yeah. going to make maybe a hundred bucks. And by the time you take out everything else, like these homes, they're not going to make, these homes on the open market would not make money. Um, and I know this because like sometimes on these loans I get, they'll do rent appraisals and they'll come back and be like, hey man, like this home's only going to only going to rent for 1985 and like your debt service loan, it's going to be like 22,000. Like we're real close. And I'm like, God damn it guys. Like this home's going to make $6,500 a month. Like that, that's, that's just what's going to happen. Right. And I've, and so, so we, we, there's some ways to, we've started to talk to lenders and lenders are starting to look at it more or I'll sign a lease with my property management company that rents it for four grand. Cause you know, they're going to lease it out for six or whatever. So we, we, there's ways to get around that from a lending standpoint. Um, but that is just, is what it is. Are you good, by the way? We're coming to the top of the hour. Do you have a few minutes to yeah, skip over? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah me good. I got one after, but I, I delayed it by 10 minutes. So we'll we'll bring cool. this home soon. But um, two quick questions. One is, what about uh, uh, neighbors in these neighborhoods where you're buying these houses? Do you have any pushback on devaluation of the property in the neighborhood or, or anything like that? I'm just picturing like you've got this neighborhood of you know single family homes. I mean, it sounds like maybe bigger single family homes. Then you got this one house with like nine cars in it and all these people come in and out all the time. Do you get any pushback from from any of your neighbors around around uh, you know you devaluing the neighborhood at all? The truth is no, but I'm going to tell you why the answer can be so directly no. And the and the other answer to that question is other people doing co-living could not say no to this, but it's because we take it so seriously. Before we'll even buy a house, we're going to ensure it's non-HOA. We're also going to ensure that parking is not going to be an issue. Like that's our number one criteria. We walk in, hey, this could be nine bedrooms. Where could nine people park? And if we don't have a good answer to that, we won't buy the home. So we're already making sure like, this isn't going to like just jam up this whole lot kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So 
we also ensure that every home on our in our neighborhood is just as nice, if not nicer, than every home on the street. So when people drive by, if I'm gonna if I'm in a B class neighborhood, my home's gonna look B plus, if not A. I mean, I'm gonna make sure this thing's popping. Why? Because I just don't want people to ever like have that look on our home. I don't want people. This is not a dilapidated boarding house. This is a nice single family rental. And the crazy thing is, and I know this is hard to believe. I'll drive by these co living homes for when everybody should be home, nine o'clock at night. Everybody should be home, and there's two cars. Yeah, it's like where the freak is everybody? Or there'll be no cars. Like I'm serious. Like you just when you have eight people sharing a home, like everybody's got a different schedule. John's on a trip. Susie's working second shift. Bobby is like overstaying over at his significant other's house. Like it's just weird. Like you'd be surprised. You'd think you'd come by and like everybody's home, and like rarely if ever happens. Now compare that to any of the Airbnbs I have, where I get complaints every weekend. Like, dude, it's not even a comparison. Like it yeah. is not even a comparison. No, we rarely, if ever get complaints from neighbors. Part of that is how we vet the properties. Yeah. Part of that, how we vet the tenants and we will shut it. We'll, we'll evict someone in a heartbeat. If some, if we get a complaint, man, and someone's like, we, we've had this once or twice before, like in the years that we've been doing this, like he's shooting up in the basement. Boom. Evicted. Like we're, we take that hardcore. He invited 10 friends over. Boom, you're gone. Here's your 30-day notice. Like your lease has to be tight. You have to be able to evict for a breakage of house rules. And like that's the shit you have to deal with, but it's worth it. And we're getting better at the systems. Like that's that's my take on it anyway. How do people learn more about this? I'm sure, how do people get into the space? Where do they where do they learn? Where can you direct them? Yeah, every every month I do, every month or two, I do a five-day challenge. We're one, an hour a day for five days. I'm actually in the middle one one right now, like tonight at eight o'clock. We're on day four today. Um where it's free. There's some upsells to it, but there's the, the basic program is free. It's scaleyourrealestate.com, scaleyourrealestate.com. And they can register, get on the waiting list for the next one. We had 600 and it's taken off, man. Like we had 638 people register for this last one. Wow. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. It's getting big. Like you said, I mean, it is a, when you think about like buying a single family home right now, it's a strategy that actually allows you to do so and cash flow. Otherwise it doesn't pencil out. No bigger pockets calculator is going to be able to t show you that most single family homes that you're going to buy today, unless you're buying wholesale, distressed, whatever, you're not going to be able to find something that cash flows. Yeah. So, yeah. So true, man. Makes so true. Sense. One of our biggest. So, on day two of this five day challenge, we tell it, we give everyone a challenge. We say, go in, find a deal because we teach them how to find a deal in your market. And, you know, of all these people, they're posting homes like, is this is like, they're like, it's too easy. Like, am I missing something? I'm like, guys, you're not missing something. This is just how much cash flow co living produces if you do it right. And like, I can't believe all these deals that are penciling out that normally would lose money. And it's just like, that's the overwhelming reaction we get when we tell people, when we teach them how to do it and then say, go shop for deals. It's crazy. I love it. And I we're talking it. like San Francisco, Phoenix, Arizona, I mean, yeah. like some expensive markets. People are like, this deal would work. <laughs> this deal would work, right? Yeah. yeah it's cool, incredible. Man. Incredible. All right. Let's dive into the GoBundance member questions. We have six pillars, bucket list adventure, horizontal income, age-defying health, Genuine contribution, authentic relationships, extreme accountability. You've been around this for a decade, so you know them all. In which one of those pillars are you crushing it? I, I think horizontal income is I feel good about. I'm just, I've been really good at, like, I would say horizontal or horizontal-ish income. Yeah, sure. No such just, thing. So for, but but from rentals, I, you know, I think I, I think, I think I got 200K deposited into my bank account from my property management, my two property management companies, short-term rental co-living stuff. And so that felt good. Uh, not to mention the other companies that are like passive ish and the profit that those companies made. So that, that, that feels good to me. I'm 32 years old. I, I don't need that money to live. Like uh, that felt good. I love it. What, which one of those pillars are you needing more accountability and or support in? 
dude, believe it or not, I feel like bucket list adventures has gone. I, I, I was big when I first joined abundance, I did every international trip. I hiked Machu Picchu. I went heli skiing in the British Columbia. Like I did everything. And now like I haven't done big events in a while. And I'm like thinking like, I need to do some like really cool. Don't get me wrong. I do cool stuff, but like, you know, not at the level going that to you spend want. 20 grand on a front row ticket to Taylor Swift. Like, I, like that's the type of stuff I need encouragement. Like, dude, you have the money. Stop being a, you know what, and go buy it for you and your wife. Just cause like, that would be a badass experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. I, I got to get on one of the international trips here soon. Uh, where in your you life are you going? I'll go with you. Yeah, of course. Of course. Where in your life are you potentially flirting with disaster? Yeah, man, this is a good question. I think that, um, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think in my, in my relationship with my wife, I'm learning to spend more time with her and to cater towards her needs. It's a very interesting season because I am focused on work, hence bucket list adventures being not as high. And yeah. I think how that also kind of goes into like, like, are you paying attention to your intimate relationship that could actually die? And I would say this when she was sitting right here and she knows it and we talk about it, but it's like, I'm focused on work, but I need to focus on her and, and her desires and her wishes and her dreams in life. And that's, um, yeah, I'm just being honest, that's gone by the wayside. And so that could, that could be flirting with disaster to some extent. Yeah, no, that's tough. It's tough, man. You're, you're married how long now? Five years, five years of September, bro. Five yeah. years. So, you know, I mean, you go through these phases in your marriage. I mean, I'm yeah. 13 years. We've gone through, you know, different phases, different seasons yeah. of marriage. It's like, hey, we're just, it's just us. And then, hey, we got a kid. And then, hey, we got two kids. And then, right. hey, we got businesses and the kids and da, 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 da. It's just, it, it, it really does. Uh, it really does take a lot to kind of stick with it. I think the best, best thing I've learned is when you're working on you only, not because of her, but just working on you. With the idea of being the best version of you yeah. and she's doing the same if you can get into that place man it seems to typically typically be a good season whatever whatever yeah. whenever you can make that happen so dude no that's good advice and i i all every time you and i have synced up on relationships it's always been a really awesome conversation i, I yeah I, I do i look up to you in that in that arena man i, oh, I appreciate it man. i was going to say too on the on the uh uh bucket list adventure thing i was thinking about it. so i'm hosting this event down here in November, which is, you know, a mastermind, call it a midlife entrepreneur, sort of like for anybody making a change in their life. So I'm, I'm excited yeah. about it. But in the spring, I want to, I want to make a call. Out. I don't want it to be huge, maybe four or five guys that come down and we do the Island, right? Like go up to Cabaret day yeah. and do some surfing. We could do, um, I, I, I have to be talked into it, but we could do, uh, not parasailing, not parag paragliding, paragliding, like you jump yeah, off a yeah, mountain, yeah. right? Yeah. In Hadabakoa, which is the middle That's of the country. Dope. There's some there's four or five stops along the along the way in this country. Being hours and hours of driving in really really interesting places, but I have to yeah. hit you up. Maybe that's something Dude, you come please, down and do. Please, yeah, please. Be great conversation. Smile is very genuine right now. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> All right, and what specific way has GoBundance impacted your life? Just mentorship, man. I know it's it's cliche to say. I'm sure everybody would probably have that answer, but it's like nope. when I was in my when I was, when I was, so, so I'm 32, I've been in here almost a decade. So I was 22 when I joined or so, you know, they, they literally the elders, cause it was like a small group at that point, yeah. put their arms around me. We're like, you're doing good in your business. Don't, you may not always do good in your business, skim some off the top and put it into real estate. I'm like, just that level of like, we care about you. I was so ADD when I was around the elders too. I was like, oh, and they were like, I'll never forget. Um, um, Mike McCarthy, he said, Sam, I believe in like saving some energy in a reserve, like in an energy bank, you're like expending all your energy all the time. And I was like, I, for whatever reason, like that just hit me. Cause I respected this guy. I was like, I need to like protect my energy more. You mm. know, I'm still very energetic, but like, it just like, gave me a new perspective. It's like things like that, man. You know, just, yeah. Coming Anything from someone you respect and love, it yeah. impacts you. 
Is there anything you're doing to protect your energy more? Yeah. I mean, just, I don't know. I don't, I, that's a tough question. I don't know if there is because I, I would love to know what that is. If you, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you no, are. Sometimes, so, sometimes it's just sometimes it's just like being more internal instead of putting it all out to external. Like I, like literally this sometimes protects my energy a little bit yeah. more. I know that sounds weird, but like I'll, I'll I'll keep it more inside instead of feeling like I have to expel it all all the time and go hard. So some of it's just like nodding and listening more. Some of it's like you know, just staying more internal with a little like protection thing that, you know, my wife yeah. taught me from her counselor and things like that, man. Little, little hacks like that. Mike's yeah. also a pretty low key guy. So for him, I think it's like, yeah. all right, calm down, please right. just calm down. He, he's, right. you know, he's pretty even keeled. He, he likes to keep it there. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. What advice would you give to a new or prospective member of any GoBundas community? Yeah. I think one thing I did really well at the beginning of my GoBundance Men, uh, membership was I went all in and I see some uh, initially and I think like um, so I had a one of my good buddies in GoBundance right now is Paul Xavier and I love this guy to death and he he did it right man he joined and he was just like I'm calling a crap ton of GoBundance like he just got his name out there in like the shortest period of time like in like a month like most of the tribe knew him because he called and he went to some trips and he he just showed up in a really cool way where he was like i'm connecting with these guys i'm posting on the page i'm i think some guys are kind of like they get in they're kind of like a little too timid i think um and then they're like ah oh, it's not giving me the value i want it's like dude like you will get out what you put in um so that was kind of what I did. I like went on every trip for the first, and now I don't have to go on as much because I, I have relationships with guys like Same. you and Same. I know David yeah. Osborne and I know the elders and I know that. So like you kind of, it's more self-sustaining. I so tell that to people all the time. I go to events like, you know, the main events I go to, you know, a couple and I, I'm in my pod. That's it. I mean, I, I get the benefit of the podcast learning from, a, right. from guys and listening, but I'm not in a bunch of other stuff, but I've been around a while. I have a lot of relationships. New people come in. I get to know them. Uh, and by the way, I looked, I connected you to Paul Xavier. That was me. Is that right? That's right. I, I was like, I think I connected these two guys. So I remember Paul was new. He's in Asheville. You're in Charlotte. And I was like, oh, you got to meet him. He's a young guy, just like you. So Dude, I made that like, connection. We're partnered. We're like partnering on some co-living stuff right now. We own a property management company together now. Thank I you sincerely. It. I got to no, be totally no, no. honest with you. I forgot you connected us. Thank yeah, you. No, of course. I, I, most people do, but that's my thing. People say like, oh, how do you add value? I'm like, you know what I do? I connect people. That's 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 the that's value add so I, cool. I provide. So um, that's a hell of a yeah. value add, man. Is what it is, right? All right, let's go over to the GoBundance card game. I've never had this question before. Six of spades. As you grow your company and business world, how do you ensure that institution doesn't squash inspiration? Good question. How do I how do I be sure that institution doesn't squash inspiration? Yeah, the way I take that is like as you grow and scale, like, you know, I think it's like the mm. startup, right? When you got that startup, there's an energy. I think about this in corporate. When I started at Progressive, yeah. I mean, granted, it was 10 billion. So it's not like small, but smallish, smaller, if you will. And there was just like a, there was an energy to it. It was like, hey, look, the guardrails are here, ethics and legality, like just do right. good things in the middle, right? And as, as it grew naturally, it had to become more systematized and process oriented. And it got right. down to a place when we were at 40, 50 billion. And before I left, where it was just like everything I wanted to do was scripted for me. So that's where, to me, it took away the inspiration in favor right. of institution. So I guess that's kind of what the question is asking. Like, as you grow this thing, how do you keep that community, the mail and the yeah. send of the pizza once, but like this community energy you put yeah. into it and not become too institutionalized? Or can you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the things I learned in my martial arts business that was really applicable, I think, to this was that, yeah. it, you know, if you if you train your replacement, 
Like in the corporate world, if you train your replacement, sometimes you're out of a job. But in the entrepreneur world, and I've always tried to keep this in my in my companies, if you train your replacement, you you get a you get an upgrade. Like you get to move up. You get to help me solve bigger, better problems. If you can systematize your job and make it more efficient, then like, cool, let's talk. I've got bigger problems for you to solve. I think keeping that culture is like a it's an energy of Hey, I took the job that you told me to do and I figured out how to systematize it, how to make it easy, how to do it cheaper. Like, cool. Like I have plenty of other problems for you to solve. And so I think, um, I actually just hired someone today. Uh, and I, that was how I pitched her. I said, you're about, cause she, she accepted a corporate job and I was like, you are going to hate that corporate job. And here's why. And like, I just pitched her on this. Like, you're going to be an entrepreneur in my company is how I pitched it on uh, to her. I said, you can be an entrepreneur with me because yes, you're furnishing all of our homes right now. That's what she's doing for us. But like, figure out how to systematize that. I said, a furnishing is worth a couple grand to me. You know what's, you know what I'm building right now? We're doing ground up construction for co-living right now. I'm like, you figure out how to systematize that. That's worth a couple hundred thousand perhaps I buy, I build. She's like, oh, okay, I get that. I can work on that. It's like that mindset, I think just creates a whole different energy than any corporation at all. That's a great answer, man. Great answer. I've kept you over. What's the best way for people to reach out, learn about you, follow you, whatever it might be. Where do you want to direct them? Yeah, Instagram man at Sam Wiegert at S A M W E G E R T, and then uh, hopefully I'll see people on my live training at ScaleYourRealEstate.com. Love it. Appreciate you coming on, brother. We'll uh, we'll connect soon. Yeah, much love. Thank you for the time.